Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing, brought to you by Livewire Markets. I'm your host, David Thornton. In the world of investing, listed markets dominate the airwaves due to their ease of access, broker coverage, and liquidity. For that reason, unlisted companies can often take a back seat. But companies aren't born on the listed markets. Many of the best opportunities exist in the unlisted pre-IPO space. Today's guest is Dane Roberts, Portfolio Manager at Fifth Estate Asset Management. Fifth Estate invests in pre-IPO, IPO, unlisted and listed microcap and small cap companies. Its first fund was launched in 2021, delivering 13.29% since then. Impressive considering the extreme volatility of that period. That fund's close to new investment, but they're about to launch their second fund with much the same strategy. In today's episode, we discuss what it takes to invest in unlisted companies, how they compare to their listed counterparts, and why now could be the perfect time to invest in pre-IPO. If you're an Apple Podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. All right then, Dane, thanks for joining us on the Rules of Investing. No, it's great to be here. Let's start at a very basic level and ladder up from there. Can you define IPO and pre-IPO markets? Yeah, so I guess taking a step back at Fifth Estate, our mandate allows us to invest from listed small caps all the way through to unlisted. Um, so with a mandate that broad, you know, 70 to 75% of what we do ends up in the unlisted markets. And so we really operate in that, that space where the company's probably, you know, just a couple of years away from being IPO ready. Um, so, you know, we sort of, we're designed so that we can work with them in, a, in an expansion capital round and then follow on into a, what, a genuine pre-IPO round and then support the, the IPO, but then we have the listed component of the business that can continue supporting them once they're listed. So we work with those businesses that, you know, they're preparing to list, but they might have, you know, they might want to do one more acquisition or they might want to clean up their capital structure a little bit, um, high grade their team, put together a proper board, and, and we work with them through that process and then help them along their way through that IPO process. How have these markets performed during the downturn? Do they mirror the listed markets or are they doing their own thing? No, they do. They're definitely coming down with the listed markets and it's, it's, a, it's a liquidity-based uh, problem, I think. So if you think about the best parable is probably what's happening in listed markets. So you look at the large cap stocks, you know, most of them up until the last little while have been pretty much on their highs. Um, you know, that, that part of the market's going very well. But if you look at the small cap end, you know, they're down 20, 25% in the last couple of years. Micro's 50 plus down, depending on who you are. Like some of those have been a disaster. And if you look at it, it's really a liquidity-based uh, liquidity problem. Everybody's running towards the large liquid stocks. And I guess that's often the last step before you run all the way to cash. But in terms of smaller micros, liquidity's draining out of the sector. It's hard to move around in the space. And so if you look at unlisted, which is less liquid again, uh, you'd have to expect that those businesses see those sort of price declines that you're seeing in the smaller micro cap end. But, you know, again, because the repricing events only sort of come when there's a new round or when that business runs out of money or needs to do a new deal, it happens with a lag. But there's absolutely no doubt valuations have come down substantially in the unlisted markets. It, it does mirror what's happening in the small end of, of listed. 
So that move uh, up the liquidity ladder, mm-hmm. um, you see it very clearly in the listed markets, but investing in unlisted markets, and we'll get to this later, it takes some different skills, different styles. You still see investors moving from unlisted to listed? You do. I mean, a lot of the, I think when you look at an unlisted business, by and large, you're looking at, you're looking for the same things you would look at if you were operating in a smaller micro cap end. You're looking for strong management. You're looking for solid leadership, strong businesses with a good niche in their industry that can grow sustainably over time. Um, and ideally, not in industries that are particularly cyclical. So what you're looking for and, and the sorts of businesses you'd own do mirror what you would most likely be doing in listed markets anyway. The difference is often that, you know, because of that liquidity or illiquidity that's in unlisted, you really, you know, well, we certainly anyway, want to be buying those assets at, at a good, you know, 20 odd percent discount to what we can get in the listed markets. Um, but, you know, because of the way our fund's structured, which is, you know, it's a good luxury to have, we can play in listed or unlisted. And so we can go and follow the best opportunity wherever we find it, whether it be listed or unlisted. So in a situation like last year or the year before where unlisted businesses were trading at premiums to listed markets, that didn't make a great deal of sense to us. So if we wanted that particular exposure, we would take it through listed markets. Um, That's reversed now. Like you're seeing, you know, a lot of that, you're seeing some heavy down rounds in the unlisted space. But companies that haven't taken private money before um, that are now coming, a lot of those would probably go straight to IPO historically, but the IPO markets are currently closed. Um, and they're far more, you know, they're far more keen to take an unlisted round to keep growing their business for another year or so while they wait for IPO markets to, to reopen. And, you know, they're good little founder-led profitable businesses. They can afford to wait, but what they don't want to do is stall their growth prospects while they wait. And that's lending itself to that unlisted pre-IPO round um, more so than before. And equities are more palatable option for them to raise as opposed to debt in the current rate environment? I think I think a lot of them are. I mean, a lot of these businesses, you know, certainly there's been an explosion in venture debt, um, which is, you know, in the last few years. And that has its place. But for a lot of these businesses, you know, if you're running a round break even, you're trying to grow as fast as you can and reinvesting all of your profits, you know, you don't really want to be spending anything on interest or so forth. But also a lot of these businesses prefer an equity check because the debt investor isn't necessarily aligned with the company. They've got a different objective. They're at the top of the stack. They're the first one out if there's a problem. Um, an equity investor, a lot of these businesses are really looking for someone that they want the capital to be sure, but they're looking for someone that can partner with them, bring a network to sort of help them, uh, maybe introduce them to some people that could be potentially be customers um, and also assist them with, you know, we have quite a big network of, of um, you know, professionals, ex-businessmen, people who have built and sold businesses, that are in our network, they're both investors and, and, um, uh, and you know, just people we have relationships over, built relationships with over the years. And they're, you know, more than happy, particularly, you know, senior industry players that are retired at the moment, more than happy to come in and have a look with us, help with the DD process on a new startup business. But also, more often than not, if they like what they see, they're actually quite happy to provide a mentor role to those sort of businesses. And you know, you're not really going to get that with a debt check. You really need an equity check with someone who's genuinely aligned and genuinely interested in supporting the growth of that business over time. And, and that's what we try to, to bring to the table. So what does the 12-month and 18-month outlook look like for the IPO and pre-IPO markets? Yeah, I think pre-IPO, well, it's interesting. I'll start with the IPO and work backwards. I think, um, you know, liquidity is bad in both. The IPO market's closed. I expect it'll be closed for at least the rest of this calendar year. 
Um, my gut feel is it probably does open early in the next year as things start to stabilise. But to get it to reopen, you are going to need stabilisation in listed markets and a bit of confidence to come back. I mean, even at the moment, you look at uh, there's a lot of placements still happening in, in, in the listed world and the vast majority of them are struggling to hold on to terms. So that gives you a clue that people aren't really looking to put new capital to work. So until that mindset changes, I think you'll find that the IPO markets will remain closed. I think probably early next calendar year they look to reopen, but even then they'll only reopen to businesses that have a strong track record of profitability and they've got to be good quality businesses with a good growth outlook and they're going to have to be priced cheap to clear to get the first couple of them away. Uh, and then I think, you know, then it'll start to build momentum on itself. But, you know, a lot of these businesses that have been IPO'd over the last couple of years that are, you know, some of them were business plans or not much more than it. Um, some of them, you know, were ARR type businesses that were still burning large amounts of cash. You know, I think it could be at least two years before you start seeing those sort of businesses successfully list. Um, so yeah, it just depends on the type of business, but for the moment, I think it's closed for almost anyone. So before we move to then uh, pre-IPO, yep. the fact that IPOs basically shut shop, mm -hmm. is that in your mind an indicator that the equity market hasn't bottomed yet? Uh, yeah, that's one way of looking at it. I think, I think there's not enough confidence uh, out there to suggest that the equity markets have bottom. I mean, smaller micro cap stocks have fallen a long way, large caps haven't. But I think, you know, there's a lot of focus on rates at the moment. It's almost a single issue market. It bobs up and down depending on what we think rate, the rate outlook is this week. Um, but the reality is I think what's being missed is that, you know, the market might move a couple of percent a week based on what we think rates are doing. But the reality is you're seeing businesses fall 20, 30% in a day. Um, based on earnings downgrade. And I think we're spending too much time looking at what the rate outlook may or may not be, which of course that's important. But, you know, the bigger picture is that, you know, it does feel like we've either just entered or about to enter an earnings downgrade cycle. And I think until, while markets are still going down, or sorry, stocks are still going down heavily on, on bad news or earnings downgrades, I think it's hard to argue that we've seen the lows. So in terms of timing, um, you're about to launch a second fund and yep. we'll get into the nuts and bolts of that later. Um, but why is now a good, a good time for investors to get into the market, um, yep. in this market specifically? Yeah, so in the unlisted side, with the IPO markets closed, it's, it's actually creating greater pressure on the unlisted side because there's a lot of people who have gone into the space, a lot of money's gone into the space over the last, call it three or four years, like quite a lot. Um, and a lot of those businesses, you know, they're big tech businesses that are burning a lot of money. There's a lot of capital still has to be, you know, deployed to support those existing rounds. And until you can IPO those businesses or some of those businesses to take the pressure off, you know, the, the guys that are funding those assets, um, you know, it, it's, it's probably not, you know, it's probably not going to improve. Liquidity is going to keep getting worse in the unlisted space. And that's, that's a problem if you have a, a large backbook of legacy assets that you have to continue to support through, you know, what's likely to be a, a capital strike that lasts probably another year or so, but also, you know, whatever potential, um, whether we want to use the, the R word, but, you know, whether it's a recession or just, a, just your standard downturn, um, you know, those businesses are still going to need support through that period. And so what we're seeing is that on the new deals that are coming through, the appetite to add new companies to the portfolios is lower than it's ever been. So it's actually quite lonely out there when you're looking for new, new, new business opportunities, which is fantastic. That's exactly what you want. And so we're in a situation where, you know, the family offices that come and go from the space, they've largely gone. Um, the listed players that come and go, they're gone. 
um, and a lot of the big players that you know belong in the space and are constantly there um, have a, have a very very diminished appetite to be to be adding to new deals. And I think that says to us that it's the perfect time. It might be the tough time to raise capital, but it's the perfect time to be putting money to work. And so I think you know markets probably find a bottom in the next call it twelve months or so. And that's our strategy: is that we'll we'll raise the money in the next couple of months. Uh, with a view to be deploying from 1 July and we'll we'll deploy that money progressively into the unlisted space over call it 12 to 18 months and we think the bottom should be in there somewhere um, and then you know you've got a situation where we'll be unwinding those positions three four years down the track into what we think will be a much improved market so that's at a high level that's that's the thinking that's the logic and you know often you know when there's pressure that's when you want to be putting the money to work all right so how do you put the money to work let's go through the um through the strategy, uh, how do you find these assets, yep. um, and what's the filter process? Yeah, so we've got we've got quite a large network um, of corporate advisors. There's actually far more corporate advisors in Australia than I appreciated. Um, you know, hundreds of them actually, and um, so we've we've got quite an extensive network there, and they obviously refer in deals to us, and, and we work with a couple of them quite closely. But we have a large network that are showing us things. Um, the we have good relationships with all of the all of the big banks, um, all of their banking teams. So we're seeing we're seeing deal flow from there. But we're also you know a lot of our investors, their family offices, their people who have bought and sold businesses, and and they are still very well connected in their industry. So our investors actually show us deals from time to time, which is which is interesting. It's a good way to be very early to the piece. And what we're seeing more recently, you know, and I, when I say recently, only in the last handful of months, but we're now getting to that size and and our reputation starting to build where our investee companies are quite happy to refer business to us. And it's, you know, it's, 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 quite, it's quite a good indication when, you know, the companies that you've supported are actually comfortable enough with you and happy enough with how the experience has gone that they'll actually refer in uh, friends or even, you know, it could be a customer um, it could be a supplier that's struggling to keep up with demand that needs more capital to expand their business. It's great when you can get a recommendation from somebody you've already invested with. So network effects are critical in it is. the unlisted space. Absolutely, absolutely. In listed markets, financial disclosures are quite easy to come by, yep. um, you know, by law. Yep. Is transparency a problem when you know, doing your research on these companies? It can be, but, you know, there are ways. I guess the, the continuous disclosure laws that protect the listed investments obviously is quite handy and it's a good it's a good reference point. But, you know, we've seen a number of times people have been able to quite successfully pull the wool over investors' eyes um, with, with their accounting or whatever. So it's not, it's not foolproof. But on the unlisted side, I mean, with a lot of the businesses we invest in, if the business is profitable uh, and, and growing, then you know we sort of insist on quarterly accounts with commentary from management. If the business is around that break even or or losing money, uh, we insist on uh, monthly management accounts plus commentary. So we are watching these businesses in real time, and we do actually get quite quite good insights into what's actually going on in the businesses and what they're actually doing with the money. So we can keep a keep a bit of a tight rein on them. So yeah, it, you're right that the industry can be opaque, but we do get you know. We do get the sort of information almost a bank would get if it was providing a loan. So we do get very good insights into what's happening with these unlisted businesses. In the listed markets, these equities are priced every second. Yep. Um, but that's not the case in the unlisted markets. No. 
What is a pricing event um, and how does that impact your thinking around your portfolio? Yeah, so the way the way we do it, a lot of times, the, the easiest way to get a pricing event is obviously some sort of trade sale or an IPO, then there's no doubt what the price is. Um, but in between, you know, we generally hold things at cost um, until proven otherwise. And I guess it's worth mentioning, you know, we're very quick to write down. So everybody says they hold things at cost, which is quite, you know, and, and sort of that's conservative. Well. It's conservative, cost is conservative if you're in a bull market and your business is improving. It's not conservative if you've got a concept stock and, you know, the micro cap end of the market falls 50%. I mean, how do you think a listed micro cap investor would feel about holding their assets at cost? They'd kill to do that. Um, so we're, we're very quick to write down if the business is not performing to plan um, and it's not, you know, we wouldn't fund that, continue funding that business at the last price, we'll write down ahead of time. Um, and then, you know, if somebody else is prepared to fund it at a higher price, all well and good, but we write down to a price where we're prepared to fund it. So our, our portfolio is actually being repriced lower in real time. Um, but again, we've got a lot of businesses that are doing particularly well, that are beating all of their targets, that are clearly worth more than what we're carrying them at. But until there's some sort of third-party validation or some sort of event for us to revalue those higher, they will stay at cost. So I guess... You know, if, if we think the business is worth more, then we'll hold it cost. If we think the business is worth less or there's been a problem with the business, then cost is no longer conservative. We'll write down to a number that we think is more conservative. Is it ever the case where you might write down um, and then they do another raising and you, you buy some more at that lower price? Yeah, that happens. Um, we've, we've had that happen with a business called Healthcare Logic where we had a problem there where the business was actually delivering quite well, um, but the board you know, made a few mistakes around how they wanted to fund the business going forward. And that ultimately resulted in uh, us, plus a couple of other institutional investors, removing that board and replacing it with actually what became a much higher quality board. But that resulted in a down round um, to continue funding the business. But, you know, at this stage, that business is, you know, there's term sheets out for twice what we did the down round at. So, we, you know, it was a technical down round based on problems that the business had around funding. But in terms of execution, the business hasn't missed a beat. So yeah, things like that do happen from time to time. And we'll always take the most conservative number, even if the business is performing. Um, but we have had times where we've written down because we wouldn't fund at a certain level, but then somebody else did fund at a higher level. And it was a, you know, a strong counterpart that put the business on a very strong footing. Um, we weren't required to step up because it wasn't a price we were happy with, but we continue to hold. Um, so yeah, there's, it's, it's swings and roundabouts, but by and large, yeah, we take the most conservative number we can. You mentioned before how you really partner with these businesses. Um, now in terms of IPOs, a lot of IPOs lose money. Um, so in your view, what does it take, you know, when does it make sense for a company to IPO yep. and when does it make sense for a company to just keep growing? Um, in an unlisted fashion? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, a lot of times, a lot of times it has to do with what the business wants to do going forward. I think, you know, like to me, I think if you've got a strong founder-led business with a good history of profitability, a good track record, um, and a clear pathway for multi-year, you know, above average, so call it 10, 15% plus uh, multi-year growth, then that's the sort of business that lends itself to listed markets and you can have quite a good experience if you price it right and that business can run on for years right um 
but some of the other businesses where you're, you know, you might only have one good year of profitability, you know, we sort of think, and, and part of the reason our fund exists is, you know, they've just ticked over profitability. Yes, you know, a lot of them want to be listed CEOs, but the reality is, you know, we often work with them for that extra year or two, get the profitability up so it's a more relevant IPO. You don't want to be IPOing if you've only got two or three million dollars worth of EBIT. You want to be up, you want to be up north of 15 type thing to be trying to be relevant to the smaller micro cap investors. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, we work with them to get the earnings up and build a track record. And that also helps with the story going forward and ends up being a much better experience for everyone else. There's, there's nothing worse than, you know, a subscale IPO coming on and it gets lost in the wilderness for two or three years before it finally grabs traction. I mean, that's why the pre-IPO and expansion capital markets exist, is to try and avoid that happening and help them through that piece whilst they're unlisted so you can have a better experience when they come to market. And I think that's what's created the opportunity for this industry is that, you know, historically, you have seen a lot of businesses that have IPO'd well before they were ready, but it was the only source of capital available, so they had to do it. Um, where that's not the case anymore, now they have options. Is it ever the case where you know, founders or majority shareholders, they become blinded in terms of the aspirations of ringing that bell, you know, in the possibly false belief that they'll be the next afterpay? Yeah, it can happen. I mean, everybody works on the assumption. You've got to be optimistic, right? We're a, <laughs> we're a growth asset class. You do have to be optimistic to a degree. But, you know, most people just assume that they list and the stock goes up. That's the starting point. And the reality is there's a lot goes into it to get to that point. If you're not priced right, if the business isn't right, if the market isn't right, if the story isn't right, if you haven't got the right group of investors, um, you know, your IPO can go horribly wrong. And we've seen several <laughs> several uh, examples of that, particularly in the last year or so. Um, so yeah, there's a lot more to it, but you know, again, we work with our we work with our our uh, management teams to make sure that they understand what it needs to look like, and and that helps. You know, we obviously operate across unlisted and listed, which helps because we still got our finger on the pulse in listed markets. And you know, I grew up in listed markets and then moved to unlisted, but you know, and that that knowledge base and that that history um, comes in very handy when you're trying to, you know, when you're trying to talk management through. And, and a lot of times, once you explain to them how it actually works and you demonstrate that, they get it. Um, and then they come along for the ride, but they just, you know, at the end of the day, they want, they want their IPO to go well. They want to have a good experience. And so, they, you know, they are generally as a rule quite happy to take advice because they know their industry, they know their business, but they don't necessarily know markets. And, you know, that's another part of what we bring to the table that can help them out. All right, Dane, give us some of your high conviction positions. What are some companies you're invested in? Um, on the unlisted guy, side? Guy got high hopes for. Yeah, on, yeah, the, on, the, on both sides. Both sides. Um, on the unlisted side, I mean, we've got, um, we've got a position in Mason Stevens, which is a, a wealth platform. Most people are probably aware of that one. Um, you know, it's a great business. It's been around for 13 years. It's been profitable for 10 years. Net cash balance sheet, underlying sort of, uh, earnings growth of about 20% a year. Now that ebbs and flows based on markets, but the underlying growth rate is around that 20%. They've won enough uh, new business to sustain that growth rate for at least a couple more years. So, you know, they're in really good shape. Um, and, you know, we were able to, to enter that business at sort of 10 times historical, um, which I think is a good price. If you look at the listed markets, the closest period have to be premium. And, you know, it's had its troubles, but, you know, fundamentally it's an okay business and it'll trade, you know, 15, 17 times forward every day of the week. So we think we've got a good, you know, we think we've got a good entry price on Mason Stevens. I think it's an asset that the market understands. And I think, you know, in a year or so's time, you know, it'll be a bigger business, but it'll make for, it should make for a very good, IPO and that's a business that's you know it's paying us dividends 
while we wait. So it's not in any hurry to do anything, but it's genuinely an IPO candidate. It's probably got strategic value to some of the bigger players, but we think it'll make for a great IPO and it'll be a multi-year growth story. Um, so that's, that's one of our high conviction ones. That's one of our bigger positions. Um, another business that we've got a position in is a company called Drive, um, which is a smash repair rollout. And, you know, that's led by a team that has uh, built and sold uh, smash repair businesses twice now, very successfully. And, you know, they were in a position where they had relationships with the insurers. They had their foot on a few sites, but they didn't have the money for the fit out. And so um, Fifth Estate, along with a few family offices out of Perth, uh, help them with the fit out. And, you know, that's a business that was, you know, supposed to be doing sort of $45 million worth of run rate by the end of June. It now looks like closer to $70 million. And they'd achieved that inside the same capital envelope. So those guys are doing a fantastic job. That's a high-quality business that we like. Um, and we think, you know, we're quite happy to continue funding businesses like that. If they can if they can continue to deliver and they can get higher returns on the, on the, cap, on the same amount of capital that was promised... Um, we're very happy to keep supporting those businesses. And that's another one that could that could be a trade sale. There'd be plenty of interest from overseas to get a toehold in the Australian market through a business like this. But, you know, with the runway in front of it, it's it's an industry that's well understood by the market. I think in a year or so that could make, you know, that could make a fantastic IPO, um, notwithstanding, you know, the well-documented issues that, that AMA are having. So how many positions do you hold? Uh, 24 okay. at the moment. Okay, is that is that normal or less than normal? It's or? probably a few more than we'd normally have. So the way we sort of think about it is we have our checklist of what we're looking for in, in a business, um, which is, you know, it's not all that dissimilar to what everybody's looking for in a smaller micro cap. It's, it's the strong management. It's a clear business plan. Um, it's a clear path, profitable or a clear path to it. And when we say a clear path, we mean sort of 12 to 18 months because often 12 months turns in 18 and 18 turns into 24 um, so, you know, we want these businesses to be well on the path to profitability so that they're infinitely IPOable, but it also gives you the opportunity to work on a trade sale should the asset have some strategic value. And it often keeps us out of trouble when you have periods like this where capital's tight. Um, you know, external validation, whether that be a contract, a large contract from another player, maybe it's an investment from an industry, uh, a, a larger industry player that validates the space. It could be uh, FDA or CE mark approvals. There's a lot of ways to get external validation, but what we really look for is is somebody who has put money to work or using the product um, that will often know more about the space than we do. Um, and also a liquidity event inside the, the timeline of our fund. But if a business ticks all sort of half a dozen of those boxes, and that's not an exhaustive list, that's just an indicative list, but if, if, if a business ticks all the boxes and we think it doesn't need any more money coming into, you know, in the life of our fund... Uh, then that'd be sort of a 5% weighting in the portfolio. If it ticks all of those boxes, but we think it'll need one more funding round, then we'll sort of come in at around that 3%. And then if it continues to deliver, we'll follow on to get billed to that 5%. And if the business is sort of, it's a bit earlier stage, we like it, we like the idea, but it's clear that it's going to need quite a bit of funding, we'll sort of start at that 1.5% funding level or 1.5% weight. And then if the business does deliver and hits its yardsticks, then you know we'll follow on in the next round, take it up to three and keep working with the business and we actually build the position as the business de-risks so rather than jump off the pier early and, and swing for the fences we sort of build into these riskier businesses almost like dollar cost averaging a little bit a <laughs> little bit a little bit i mean yeah i think yeah we, we average up we yeah. average up we don't ever average down um okay so you launched fund one in 2021 uh and it's delivered 13.29 percent since then yep um 
and but that's closed to new investment, but you're going to go again. Um, are there any differences with Fund 2? Is it a mirror image? Um, and why are you launching the second fund? Yep. So, no, Fund 2 will be run by the same team, the same way, same mandate as Fund 1 was. The only key difference is Fund 1 was a four-year term. This will be a five-year term, which is a bit more consistent with the industry norms. And also, that extra year is probably going to be coming, coming quite handy because we're going to be deploying through a downturn. So that extra year... Um, to allow markets to recover is probably going to be important when we come to the realisation end of things. Um, so, yeah, so the funds are very similar. The idea is the same. What we told people when we when we raised Fund 1 was one that we'd run the money as though it was our own, uh, which is our way of saying we'll, we'll try and protect your downside as best we can without limiting your upside. Um, but the other, the other promise we made to investors was that when we get to 70 75% deployed into unlisted investments, uh, that we'd stop and allow investors to maintain a 25 to 30% type exposure to listed markets. And that's important because, you know, when these unlisted businesses come to market, we want to be in a position where that fund can continue to take its allocation in the IPO and continue to support those businesses. But also, you know, we want to be able to, you know, micro caps, small caps have been hammered. There's going to be an opportunity in the next year or so where a lot of money can be made in that space. And we didn't want the Fund 1 investors to have to give up that opportunity either. So they will maintain an exposure to listed markets and Fund 2 will be run in, in the same way. Um, but where we sit with Fund 1, you know, we're probably one or two deals away from being full in Fund 1. And looking in front of us, you know, we're seeing quite a bit more than one or two good deals. So the opportunity to keep going is there. Um, and from a cyclical point of view, as we discussed earlier, with capital being so tight and, you know, very little money coming into the market, in fact, more of it's coming out than coming in, um, you know, that's the time to go in and snap up the bargains. And, and that's what we're looking to do with Fund 2. So Fund 2 doesn't exist to support Fund 1 positions. There should be minimal crossover. We do have two or three businesses in Fund 1 that are absolutely flying. Um, they're beating all of their targets. They're really delivering above and beyond anything we thought they'd do. And, you know, they're, they're going to need, or not need, but they're going to probably want capital at the back end of this calendar year, maybe early next. Um, and for the right reasons, to continue accelerating their growth, not because they tore up the money we gave them the first time. Um, so, you know, those deals are going to be hard to get on if you're not already there, because there's already some big balance sheets around those businesses. They're very keen to continue supporting. Fund one won't be in a position to support because it'll be full. Um, but, you know, fund two will be a walk-up start and we'll be in the room helping to structure those terms. So... The business, if the business keeps delivering and the deal makes sense as a standalone deal, um, which we suspect they will, then there's two or three businesses that Fund 2 can step up on that Fund 1 already has a, a good working knowledge of. But Fund 2 in no way supports the losers of Fund 1. If you're, if you're in Fund 1 and you've got a problem, then if Fund 1 can't support you, you're on your own. Uh, given the nature of the space, um, investors have to buy into the funds in, in more way than one. Um, what kind of investors are you looking for? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, the, the network effect that we talked about earlier is, 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 is crucial to what we do. So, you know, a lot of our investors, they're exactly who you think they are. They're, they're CEOs, CFOs, directors, or ex-retired uh, versions of those, or family officers and people who have built, built businesses and run businesses, and also people who are, who are running private businesses. We've actually had some of our investee companies um, invest into Fund2, which, which was quite nice. Um, so the sort of investors we're looking for, I mean, they're people who can add to our network and people who, who share the idea that, you know, the unlisted markets, bringing these companies through unlisted and supporting them through that last leg of their growth um, into an IPO situation, that they understand that, number one, it takes time and it's not always a smooth process, but number two, that, you know, 
there's a lot of money to be made if you can get it right in supporting these businesses. And a lot of our investors are actually quite happy to work with us in that endeavour and support us in working with those businesses. I mean, at the end of the day, you're talking about 20, 25 positions, right? It's not a huge portfolio. Um, so we're very selective in the deals that we do. And more often than not, you know, there's someone in our network that can work with us to support those deals and also validate those deals and also de-risk it for everyone. If you've got an experienced campaigner that's been in the industry for a decade or more, is happy to provide a mentoring role to a startup business, even though management obviously do know quite a bit about what they're doing. Um, it de-risks it for everyone. And, you know, the company's happy to have the mentor. The mentor is happy to be involved in something new and fresh that's growing and, and to support a young business. And, you know, and we're happy to, to provide the capital, the introductions and, and whatever other support we can to, to make that all happen. And they've got to be okay with infrequent pricing events. You're not after day traders. No. Well, the fund's, the fund's locked up for five years. So once you're in, you're in. So we're all in it together. Um, the founders, the principals, the investment team, whatever you want to call us, we're, we'll be, we were big investors in the first fund. We were, I think the first fund was $50 million. We were about 14 of it. Um, the second fund we're shooting for 75 will be at least 10 of it. Um, so we're genuinely in there alongside investors. Um, and so we're just looking for people who want to come along on the ride with us and, uh, and, and share the journey. All right. We always finish with three favorite questions. Yep. Um, they're a bit of fun. <laughs> Question one, what's one thing investors are getting wrong about today's market? Oh yeah. It's always dangerous to think, you know, more than the market, but, um, uh, look, I think, I think we touched on it earlier, but I think, We've almost got a single issue market at the moment. Everyone's, it's all about rates. Rates up, rates down, and the market swings around with it. But I think the bigger the bigger issue is is that rates have moved, whether they move a bit higher or not, I'm no expert. It feels like they're probably going higher. Inflation doesn't really feel like anyone's got it under control anywhere in the world yet. So rates are probably going a bit higher. But the bulk of that damage is probably done in terms of rates, I guess. But what we need to start turning our attention to is what how that impacts the real world. And I think, you know, as I sort of mentioned earlier, I think we're probably about to start an earnings downgrade cycle. And I think attentions have to move to the micro around what, you know, how, how, uh, how sustainable are the earnings levels of some of these businesses, particularly if you face the consumer. Um, and, you know, what's the real earnings power of these businesses? Because it feels to me like there's substantial parts of the market that are over-earning at the moment. And I think that should be something that people are focusing on more than necessarily the absolute level of rates. You're thinking about consumer when you say that? Consumer I, think I think consumer, yeah. I mean, you look at a lot, of the, a lot of the retailers and everyone's gone on a spending binge, right? And travel's on fire, take your pick. But I mean, travel's a bit different because the international tourists are coming back. So you can see how that might sustain for a bit longer. But, you know, in terms of, you know, I think they call it revenge spending, don't they? But in, in terms of just the absolute elevated level of consumer spending that we've seen, and it's been going on for two years now, everyone's been calling the death of the consumer for quite some time, and they're proven very resilient. But I think the reality is, you know, if, if you're going to take rates from next to nothing up to, you know, four, five, six percent, um, that is going to have an impact sooner or later. And, and that impact's probably been mooted because we had so many people on fixed price mortgages or fixed rate mortgages rather. Um, for the last handful of years. And I think that's given people the confidence to keep spending. And the unemployment rate's been so good. Everyone who wants a job's got one. And I think, you know, you keep putting rates up to these sort of levels, sooner or later, if, 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 the, if the genuine intention is to get inflation under control, sooner or later, the consumer has to slow down. And sooner, sooner or later, people either, whether they lose their job or not, they have to start worrying that they might. And that's what'll bring the that's what'll bring the spending under control. And in turn, that's what brings inflation under control. So I just, it's hard to see how 
Um, it's just hard to see how the absolute level of rates is going to be the key driver from here. It feels like it's going to be more how people respond to what's already happened. Could you share a story of a big win or a big loss you've had in your career? Um, what happened? What did you learn yeah. from it? Yeah, I don't think I don't think you've got time to go through my losses. That'd be a, <laughs> that'd be a whole new segment for you, mate. I'll come back another time. We could do a whole day on it. Um, but in terms of winners, I guess where a lesson was learned. I mean, a lot of times with your winners, you don't learn much. I think is the answer. That's your mistakes are where you really learn. But you know, we had a business years ago. We invested in Next DC, and that was a very interesting situation where I think the stock was trading down. You know, dollar fifty, dollar eighty type level. I think the I think you could liqu- you could have liquidated it for two dollars fifty at the time. Um, everyone had completely given up on the business, including Bevan Slattery, who was the founder. He just sold out, so everybody had given up. There was no one supporting this thing, but. At the end of the day, they had two or three sites. They had a deal with Microsoft, which, you know, that's as good a validation as you're going to get. Um, and you could see that the business model had worked overseas. Um, there was no doubt that the business model worked. It was just how long would it take to get going? And so, you know, we bought into that around that level. And, and you look at it now, you know, Craig's done a pretty good job with that business. He's really, you know, it, it took a long time to get going. It really did. But look at it now. It's firing on all cylinders. It's a multi-billion dollar business. But that's a stock that you just couldn't give away that, you know, I think, and it was pretty lonely when we were buying it and it refused to go up, but, you know. Do you, uh, still, do you still own it? We don't now, no, we've moved on. But, um, but you know, that's one of those businesses where I think the lesson, you don't get a lot of lessons out of your winners, but that one, I think, you know, if you do the work and you do, you know, you have conviction in what you're doing, it, it, it's okay to take on the herd. It's always more comfortable when you're running with the herd, right? Always. But there are times where, you know, the market does get it wrong and the narrative can change quite quickly. And so I think the lesson from that was, you know, you got to have, you got to have confidence. You got to have confidence in your conviction, but to get that conviction, you really got to do the work. And, and that's, that's where you get to. But, you know, in terms of, you know, lessons from the losers, God, there's heaps of those. I mean, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of my mistakes have often come from being too close to management almost where, you know, you own these businesses for a long time, you meet management half a dozen times a year, every year for years. And, and, you know, you, you form a relationship with management and then you kind of, and it just, it, I think it just chips away at your cynicism over time. And I think that, that can, that can be a problem over time. Um, yeah. So that, that's one of the lessons. And I think the other big lesson I've learned over the years is that you just got to be careful of complicated accounting. If, if, if a business has got a lot of discretion in its accounting, you have to assume that they're probably using it. Uh, and that, that can go on for years, but somewhere along the line it gets found out. If and it walks like a duck. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, you know, there are, there are certain businesses that do have a lot more discretion than others, and I think you've got to be particularly careful. And if it takes a lot of work to understand the accounting, that's a problem in and of itself, I reckon. It, it should be clean and simple. Um, and if you're struggling to understand it, it's fair to assume that probably everyone else is too. So it's gonna, that's a business that's going to struggle for support. Question three, if markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only own shares in one company, um, whether that company is in your space yep. uh, or, you know, anywhere, big cap NASDAQ stock, yep. uh, which company would that be and why? Yeah, well, there's one that we do own actually on the listed side, um, which would fit that bill quite nicely. It's a company called Channel Infrastructure. I think it's the only listed position we've held for the entire life of the fund and continue to hold. Um, it's listed in New Zealand. It's not dual listed. It's not well known, but it used to be New Zealand refinery. So it used to be the uh, oil refinery in New Zealand. And what they've recently done over the last year or so is they've shut down the refinery and turned it into an import terminal. So the business is in the process of re-rating from, you know, an eight times PE, rubbishy, highly volatile, industrial, cyclical multiple 
Um, and it's just slowly growing into an infrastructure multiple as the business as the business evolves. So the, the shutdown process is done now. The terminal's up and running. Um, it's providing on it makes its money from on-site storage as well as distribution through the pipeline. It has a monopoly over the airport on the North Island. So as air travel recovers, it should continue to tick higher. And the bulk of the revenues are underpinned by take or pays that run out as far as the eye can see. And, and the nice thing about those is that they're inflation linked, um, and most of their debt is fixed. So. That's a business where, as we sit here today, um, it's par, uh, past uh, peak capex. Um, it's around peak debt now, so the debt will start to come down from here. The dividend's just been reinstated, so it's on a six or seven percent running yield, which is quite handy. Um, and yeah, we just think that business continues to re-rate. It's you know it's on a seven times EBITDA type number for an infrastructure stock. That's still pretty cheap. Um, yeah, and that that business has done very well through what's been a. a turbulent period for markets. You look at that chart, it's hard to believe that the markets are down, but we think that one's got a long way to go and, and you know, it's providing quite a handy little dividend yield while we wait. So yeah, I, I could comfortably own that for five years and not worry. Love it. Well, Dan, this has been an amazing chat. I'd love to have you back on the podcast soon. Great. Thanks, mate. No, it's been fun. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. I'll see you next time.